0: Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner, and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment, because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. doing something I've never done before, which is record a podcast on Facebook Live. Many of you uh, follow me over on iTunes. I have a great podcast called Adventures in Happiness because uh, in this day and age, being happy is definitely an adventure. And I'm committed to share with you the latest information around health and wellness so you can live the happiest life. I am so excited to have today's guest. And we're going to be talking about A really important topic that sometimes makes people uncomfortable, which is the topic of depression. Let me share a little bit about our guest. So Dr. Kelly Brogan is a Manhattan-based holistic women's health psychiatrist, author of the New York Times bestseller, A Mind of Your Own, and she is the co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College, and she also has a bachelor's from MIT in systems neuroscience. She is definitely a smarty pants, and I'm very excited to have her here. Kelly, thanks so much for being with with us.
1: I'm so, so happy to be here with you.
0: Well, this is a a big topic. I mean, I was really surprised when I read your book to read that 11% of Americans are on antidepressants. And one of the things that you share is that you used to give people, your patients, antidepressants. Can you tell us a bit about your past and when you began to realize that something wasn't quite right? Yeah. So it's actually now
1: since we published the book, 16 percent is the updated stat.
0: Wow. Um,
1: Yeah. It's interesting. So, you know, I think it's. I don't know. It, it's it's allowed me to see things uh, through through a lens that I think many conventional doctors wouldn't have available to them if they didn't have a health experience that woke them up to a broader mm-hmm. version of the truth. So I was not like raised a hippie. I was not raised with any you know regard whatsoever for alternative medicine. And I went to medical school because I worked a suicide hotline actually at MIT, where suicide is, a, is actually a big issue. And I was supervised by a psychiatrist, and I just was left with this impression that we've cracked the code on human behavior. We know how to help people, we know how to end suffering, and we just need to give them more access to medications. And I wanna help, you know, I wanna help in that regard. Yeah. And so I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist, and it wasn't literally until I had my own health crisis, which began around a diagnosis, nine months postpartum of um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is like an autoimmune thyroid condition, uh, that I basically encountered this deep inner voice that said, I don't want to take a prescription for the rest of my life like all my patients do you know that's not for me it's fine for them you know which is this sort of weird hypocrisy that unfortunately a lot of physicians find themselves engaging in and i went to a naturopath and so i put my hashimoto's into remission in the space of nine months and i've always been a science nut i've always been really comfortable on pubmed.gov and deep in statistics, and I just switched gears and I said, okay, so I want to learn what else I wasn't told about in medical school and training, you know, including the fact that food has anything to do with health and chronic disease. We literally don't get more than one hour of nutrition training in an entire decade of, you know, our um, education and I didn't learn that you could put an autoimmune disease into remission. I didn't learn that chronic disease ever had any other course beyond maintenance. And so it was through my exploration of the scientific literature obsessively over the next couple of years that I began to discover a lot of things I wasn't told about different classical medications, so from birth control to acid-blocking drugs, antibiotics, and of course then zoomed in on my own specialty, um, I was given, the way the universe works, I was given a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic uh, by a colleague of mine who is a therapist, and she said, you know, what do you think of this book? You prescribe all these meds. And because I had just had that um, healing experience of my own body, I read it, and It changed my life completely. In fact, I put down my prescription pad and never started a patient on medication again, ever since that time. Why? Because I um, really was able to hear what Robert Whittaker, who's an investigative journalist, what he was trying to say. And what he was exposing was the fact that we have been prescribing more and more and more and more medications. But so then why is it? (laughs) that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is what happens when you're live.
1: <laughs> exactly. So why is it that there is more and more and more disability mm. secondary to mental illness, right? Like, sh- shouldn't we have more treatment and less disability? Shouldn't it be making things better? And is it
0: possible? Wait, so you're saying that there is, as time went on, we were getting more drugs, like more solutions, but it didn't actually show with people getting better. Exactly. That's okay.
1: exactly right. So that today, according to the World Health Organization, the number one cause of disability in the world is depression. And Mm -hmm. we have more and more people being treated. So is it possible that actually the the medication-based intervention is not helping? Is it possible that it's actually making things worse? Like that's a really controversial statement. And I had to dive into the research literature myself to be able to understand how I personally could have started, oh, I don't know, couple thousand people on medications myself thinking it was the right thing to do Uh, and that's where I always default to one of my favorite quotes by Maya Angelou which is when you know better you do better. Right. You know if there's anything in this conversation that happens to sort of stir a truth inside anyone listening then it's just potentially the beginning of a new way of you know moving forward.
0: No. No. Let me ask you about this, this knowing better, because if you go out and you speak to anyone on the street and you ask them what depression is, they tend to tell you that it's, it's something chemical, you know, they all know the word serotonin and, and now there's a lot of research coming out with a new understanding of what depression really is, but there's this really big gap that you explain between when a, a scientific research paper comes out and it actually gets into the hands of a a therapist. Can you kind of talk us through the research and kind of where we are and and what we're beginning to understand about depression?
1: Yeah, exactly. So that gap, um, according to, you know, statistics is 17 years. So in your life, that's a long time to wait for science-based medicine, right? And so, you know, the most important premise is to understand that unlike many other disciplines in in medicine, psychiatry doesn't have any objective tests. So you don't go to your family practice doctor or your psychiatrist and get a brain scan or even a blood test or an EEG. It's just a conversation like what we're having. And so it's a subjective label. Um, And so we need to acknowledge that all of these mental health um, and mental illness labels are not actually disease entities in the ways we might want to think about it. And trust me, I was trained literally to tell patients, taking your Prozac is no different than a diabetic taking insulin, but it's not true. And, and part of the reason it's not true is that depression is not one thing. So I like to encourage people to think about it like a fever, you know? So if you have a fever, you know that your body is dealing with something but you don't know what it's dealing with and you don't necessarily even know what would be the best course of action in terms of helping your body to deal with it. You have to dig deeper, right? Investigate further. And so, you know, depression, what our best understanding is based on 20 years of literature. So this again, isn't even new stuff is that it is a reflection of a bodily response. So the language for a bodily response is called inflammation. Right, so so inflammation we think of as like such a bad thing, but it's it's not a bad thing necessarily. It's a sign that your body is responding. So what is it responding to? Is it responding to psychospiritual stress that is chronic? You know, are you in an abusive relationship at an unsatisfying job? Is it responding to a toxicant exposure? Do you have mold in your walls or? You know, did you get exposed to a medication that is actually driving an inflammatory response like birth control, for example? Um, Is it that you have a nutrient deficiency like B12 that is making it very hard for your body to regulate its own detox mechanism and is driving inflammation? Um, Could it be an autoimmune condition? You know, it's no accident that I learned a lot about thyroid and its role masquerading as a psychiatric illness that is really, you know, immune based. Uh, And so we need to dig deeper beyond the label to understand what it means for you. And the good news is that in my opinion, it is always, always, always reversible if you believe it to be so that I have come to um, the conclusion is, is actually the most critical ingredient. So that's why I say, you know, while we're talking, see how, how this information feels, right? Like if it feels like there's something to it, don't worry so much about the details, just know that there is absolutely like a path forward that involves, you know, a radical experience of healing that maybe conventional doctors don't know is totally possible.
0: Right. Um, In a moment, I want to talk about some of the trigger foods that you have seen that can contribute to depression. But first, I just want to share a really quick personal story, which is why I'm so excited to have you here. Um, As you know, I wrote a book about tapping for weight loss and body confidence. And my struggle with my body was like my big pain. You know, it was like, it started when I was 15 and it wasn't just the weight. I just wanted to crawl out of my skin. I didn't like being in my body and I would do like diet and diet. And no matter how much I dieted, I wouldn't lose weight or I'd lose some weight. And then I'd gain it again. And it was just this, this horrible pattern. And so as many people know, that's when I decided like, I'm tired of, of this fight. And I want to do something radically different. And I started to just look at my emotions around food, my emotions around myself, my self-worth. And the moment I took that approach and I dealt with the emotional aspect of it, it's like, I didn't even have to be as strict on my diet anymore. My body just started responding better. So definitely like, that's a huge component, but something else came up, which I was not expecting. And that was that when I began, when I was very clear on my emotions and because I was tapping, I was very aware of myself i began to notice that certain foods had impact on my moods which i'd never noticed before and i noticed that every time i had gluten i just like hated the world i don't know how else to say it i just i would have like a piece of bread and i would just feel irritable and i never made the connection i thought it was just because i didn't like my body or i didn't like who i was i had all these stories about why i wasn't feeling good so just with that just because i noticed I wasn't feeling well. I stopped. And it's interesting because I have not had gluten for like three, four years. And people ask me, do you have celiac? And I'm always like, no. And they say, well, why don't you eat gluten? And I usually like, I say, oh, because it's, I I have like a skin reaction or it's digestive, which is like true, but they're really minor. It's just, I never wanted to say, I think it makes me depressed. Like, I think it, it gives me really low lows. And then when I picked up your book and read about it, it was like, it was, it was so rewarding to notice something intuitively, to notice something about myself, and then to begin to see that, yes, there's been research around this. Yeah. So can you tell us about these trigger foods?
1: I always say that's what I'm here to do, is just get in the corner of people who already have come to this intuitively, right? So to just show you that there's actually this all this beautiful science to substantiate your intuition, I, I just love... What you describe, because that's really the the goal for all of us, is some sort of reunion with our body, where we begin mm. to understand its messaging, where we understand that our body is on a journey. We're just here to witness it and support it, and that's you know exactly what you describe. Most of the women I work with have to have a, a, sort of like a a container, you know, that I help to create with a certain set of like structured rules in order to get clear enough to begin to hear and read those signals. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, I think it's intuitive for a lot of us that the brain talks to the gut because we've had, you know, diarrhea when we're nervous or we have lost <laughs> our appetite when we fall in love or, you know, there is, we get that. But actually, for a number of decades now, there's an incredible body of of literature that talks about how the the gut actually impacts the brain, behavior, mood, cognition. And we have a better understanding of how that happens and that it's real and and the details of it even Um, and the role of the immune system. So you know, the, there are certain foods that I ask people to explore their relationship to, which is a nice way of saying to cut out (laughs) for for a month. And it's, I chose them because of the science that exists that suggests that these foods for certain people can push and pull on their mood and cognition. I mean, there is a case report I, you know, I published in a, uh, wrote a blog about of a 37-year-old woman, this was in the New England Journal of Medicine, who literally was so psychotic that her family took out a restraining order on her. She was admitted psychiatrically. She was treated with Zoloft and Risperdal, so two medications. They didn't really help. She was then transferred to another hospital and Finally, there, there was a workup of some of the physical symptoms that she had had, like weight loss, for example. And she was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and she was diagnosed with celiac disease. And so they put her on a gluten-free diet and she was completely normal and back to her baseline within two months. So this is how much it can affect. It's not just like, oh, maybe I feel a little foggy. Sometimes it's that but it can be that dramatic. I mean, there are actually over 200 abstracts uh, on the link between schizophrenia and wheat alone. But what's been confusing for a lot of people is that they intuitively observe what you observe, but then they say, oh, but I'm not celiac, so like it can't be real. And so, Yeah, so that's where actually, again, science has your back because your, you know your favorite doctor might not know this, but there are Um, a number of studies looking at something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And this is to acknowledge that even without the stigmata, you know, of celiac disease or the formal criteria for diagnosis, diagnosis, which is normally arrived at through a small intestinal biopsy, what you're experiencing is real. And it's particularly real around mood. Um, such that some very high quality studies have been done, like cross, what are called crossover trials or, you know, challenge um, and re-challenge studies. And it's very clear that there is that connection. Right. So to me, when I look at eliminating um, gluten for a period of a month, you know, you're not really giving much up. Right. Because it's almost always a processed food. It's almost always like with the accompaniment of like GMO oils and sugar. And so it's not like you're giving up health foods uh, necessarily. You're giving up a lot of processed food. So there could be a lot that goes with it, that exits with it. Um, I also asked people to give up um, for a month dairy. This was the hardest one for me because I am you know I was raised in, by an Italian mom and I I literally ate bread and cheese in some variety uh, for, like, I don't know what it was, 25 years of my life, every day, three times a day. So, you know, these foods, we actually understand how they can be addictive. We have a mechanistic understanding of how bread and cheese, for example, literally can plug into reward centers in your brain in a way that, like, broccoli doesn't. Right, So, right? so unfair. So unfair, I know. And... All of it is just in the service of understanding what it does for you. So I I asked to cut those things out. Then I asked for people to cut out some specific starches, not because they're bad, but just because we are learning more about the ecosystem in your gut um, and the bacteria in your gut, and they love these starches. So things like white potatoes and grains um, and legumes like beans uh, and you just want to have a clear picture so to read those signals that you you ultimately were able to read and understand are you is your gut ready? Is it healed enough to be able to eat those kinds of things? Most of the time in my experience it is um, but we want to sort of regulate for that initially. then we're cutting out processed sugar which is hopefully no one needs a you know a primer on why sugar can be a problem but you might not be able to appreciate, how much of a problem it can be, you know, that literally it can drive diagnoses of ADHD, panic attacks, chronic fatigue. It can literally be just processed sugar in your life, which is sneaking in in all sorts of places, including like salty snacks. You know, they're, they're putting sugar. Um, Then the big, big, big ones for the women that I work with, and I totally get it. um, The biggest one is probably coffee. Um, you know, I practice in Manhattan where everyone practically has like an IV infusion. I joke that when I, you know, when I do workshops and stuff, it almost feels like I'm, I'm running like a 12 step program for coffee. <laughs> it's so much a part. It's not only the, the effect of the coffee and the punch to your adrenals, but then it's a conditioned response. So it's like Pavlov's dogs, you know? So I actually think that's why decaf isn't so, it doesn't make so much sense to me because your body has learned how to recruit all of its fight or flight chemicals that it possibly can muster, you know, the moment you smell and taste that beverage. So, you know, I ask people to, to stop that and to stop drinking alcohol again, just to explore your relationship with it. Because after the month, if you feel so inclined, you can reintroduce it. But almost always there's such a shift in clarity and energy and mood and stabilization of things like, you know, hunger, endless hunger. So you want to sort of get that physiologic based, in place first so that you can do maybe the deeper, um, psycho-emotional work that, you know, comes, you know, comes with everything that you, you know, represent.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the biggest questions I get when someone finds out I don't have gluten, they're like their first response is like, Oh, you poor thing. Like, you know, you can't like this, this idea that somehow by not having to have, like be able to have any cake you want, You you lack joy, so it's this feeling like, well, if I don't eat these foods, then I'm not really going to be loving my life. I feel like that's they might not say it like that, but I think that's what we're trained to feel. And the difference is the reason it's so it's so easy for me is because I finally made that connection that it doesn't actually bring me joy, like at all. I'm so much happier than I've ever been before without having to get the grocery store cake. You know what I mean? Like, and, but you, you can't get there until you feel it for yourself. Cause you can have so many people tell you not to eat certain things, but you have to do it yourself. And that's why I like that you're calling it an experiment to figure out, um, does this really work? But I will say in the beginning, it was very hard for me. So can you talk about the, the detox side of letting go of these foods?
1: Yeah. So I I love what you're saying because that's exactly what I'm going for is a felt bodily experience of this kind of freedom you know that you're describing because you can't you know I like to talk about science fine but nobody actually changes their life because of science it just doesn't work that way you need to have a feeling of it And and that's why it's like you know if you burn your hand once you don't need to constantly tell yourself don't touch the flame. Don't touch the, you just know your body just knows. And then you're all that energy is freed up and you actually just intuitively move through the world where you don't have to constantly use your mind to navigate. Right. And that's right. so much of what, you know, where our, our missions are so aligned. Um, but it doesn't mean it's easy. Okay. So <laughs> The first two weeks are the hardest, hardest, hardest part. And it depends on what you've been eating. But if you've been eating the way most of us have been told, like, oh, it's not a big deal, everyone's fine, like just stop being weird and eat what everyone else eats. Um, If you've been living that way, then it could be that you have like 10 to 14 days of literally it has different names. It can be called the carb flu or, you know, it's, um, you know, different kinds of sugar detox, but it can look like literally aches fatigue, tremendous fatigue, headaches, and irritability for a period of about two weeks, but it passes, it completely passes. And then the next two weeks are where things really start to emerge and become clear. And the reason I feel so passionately about this, maybe once in a lifetime experience that you give yourself as an adult um, is because the The baseline that you can reach is one that you generated all yourself. You know, you didn't have to go every day to an appointment. No, this is all your lifestyle changes. You are in charge. And then you get to see, like, do I really have insomnia? Like, am I really an anxious person? Like do i really struggle with memory because by the end of even just that month you might find that you don't have acid reflux you thought you had and you were taking a supplement for for 5 years so it's just getting very much down to a baseline understanding of what you look like without these potentially influential exposures and then you can learn for yourself if you reintroduce them how how obvious it is that you know it's, it's worth you know living a freer life the way you're describing
0: so, it does seem like in the beginning when we want to have this experiment that it is, it takes some effort, right? And we so desperately wish that there was a pill. You know, I think everybody wished that we could just take a pill and feel better. And so I can see the conflict because here we have someone saying, well, just take this pill. And now the other side definitely takes a lot more work, a lot more personal work. So talking about an antidepressant and looking at it in the long term, like what are some of the long term effects for people who begin to go down that road or, or, or on that road?
1: Yeah. So this was a really, really big um, leap that I had to make once I was able to look with clear eyes at what the literature has to say about antidepressants, Because as I mentioned, I had prescribed them for many years, not only that, but my specialization was actually um, in pregnancy and postpartum. So I was prescribing these medications to pregnant women specifically, uh, and breastfeeding women. So you can imagine that, you know, what I'm about to describe was jarring for me. And it may be for, you know, some people listening, trust me, I get it, you know. But it's it's all uh, in the service of trying to get the fuller picture than what our current system is set up to inform us about. And that's sort of the beautiful time that we're in is that we can learn this on our own and make our own informed decisions, even if our prescriber doesn't have the full story. So, you know, when it comes to. Antidepressants, again, we want to believe that they are specific chemicals having a very specific chemical rebalancing effect, and that they're correcting a problem. And that is like a really nice idea. It feels good. It feels simple. It feels- A cute good little good. package. It's a nice little package. But there is literally in 60 years of medical literature, not a study to substantiate that claim. So Re- this- Really? Really. And this Uh, is not my information. Like, I am the messenger. Um, There are, are some intrepid psychiatrists who came before me, like Peter Bregan and Joanna Moncrief, who have been, you know, screaming from the rooftops about this and saying, you know, the serotonin theory of depression is a total myth. And then, you know, you can you can read all of these quotes from people at the National Institute of Mental Health, like scientists saying, stop with this. Like, it's not actually a valid um, statement And the pharmaceutical companies are allowed to advertise. We're one of three countries in the world that allow them to advertise directly to consumers. And they are allowed to talk about these ideas, you know, that there are that there is a rebalancing happening of your serotonin. So what we've come to understand is that with, the- with cute cartoons. Exactly the little <laughs> bubbles coming across the synapse. And yeah, and you know it has an impact on us and it has yeah. such an impact that then when when subjects are enrolled in trials and they are told, okay, we are studying a new antidepressant, you're either going to get the sugar pill or you're going to get the antidepressant. They know that antidepressants have some side effects, dry mouth, you know they've seen the commercials, et cetera. And so when they're in this trial and they start to feel those side effects, They say, oh, yes, I'm in the treatment group. Like, my chemical imbalance is being resolved. And this is called the active placebo effect. It's a real thing. It doesn't mean they were fooled or duped. It's a physiologic thing that happens, and they actually do get better for a period of time. And it has nothing to do with any mechanism that the pill is exacting on the body. And this has all been borne out in very controversial literature, a lot of which was collected by Uh, by a researcher named Irving Kirsch, who's arguably like the placebo effect expert in the world. And what he found is that these meds are not working for the reasons that we think they are. And, you know, what happens is that we study them for six to eight weeks, but then people go on to take them for 10 to 20 years. And none of that is based on evidence. And in fact, The evidence is to the contrary. All of the naturalistic evidence, which Robert Whitaker has exposed and and did in his book, shows actually that you're better off not taking it. That the long-term outcomes are that people who take them long-term have higher rates of disability, not meaning like, you know, they become injured, but that they don't, some weirdly sort of fall out of functioning. You know, like I have a patient in my practice who, who was on, uh, I think for 21 years, uh, antidepressant. And she started off the journey as an architect and now she's been unemployed for six years. She's like, Yeah. Totally fine. You know, there's no real explanation. And there are some theories about the cognitive dulling that can happen over time. But the truth is, it's really um, the Wild West. And we don't know what most pharmaceuticals do long term. That's not what they're designed for because the trials are short term trials. And, you know, it makes sense that no one would ever really come off them because why would you not need it? You know, what have you done or been encouraged to do in terms of? resolution of the reason that you were on it in the first place. And that's why before I engage anyone in a medication taper, which is now what I do for a living, um, I make sure that we are addressing, you know, detox, meditation, diet, that we are addressing all the potential root causes at once so that you're not left with the reason you went on it in the first place as you come off it.
0: Uh, So just to be clear, if someone's on an antidepressant right now, the last thing you want them to do is just completely stop.
1: So not only is it literally the last thing I want them to do, but I need it to be like in neon lights that there is an order of operations. Yeah. First thing that happens. So I do not taper one milligram of a dosage before we begin the healing process. It's because I learned the hard way, because after I read that book, I went into my practice and I said, you know, I'm going to offer everyone in my practice the opportunity to come off these medications should they choose to. And I sort of did what I guess I learned in my training, which is, you know, 25% of the dose a week or whatever. And I was literally running uh, like a hospital in, out of my you know office because there was so much medical instability that led to almost all of these patients needing to take medical leaves of absence from their jobs. It was such a wake up call for how challenging it can be to come off these medications. And anyone who has come off a medication, perhaps on their own and become really unstable, might have been told that it's their mental illness, you know, coming back or you're relapsing and you see you need medication. I told patients that myself, but it's not true. And now we understand since 2014, it's been published in literature that this is a real phenomenon that these medications are unfortunately habit forming and they can be quite challenging to come off of perhaps more challenging than any medications under the sun. And that's why I believe that the order of operations, because I I learned the hard way and now I do it differently. And there is a way um, slowly to ease your body off of these medications. But I will say, that there, you know, I used to be an atheist, okay? I was never, never, never not a spiritual cell in my body. And it's been through my own journey, of course, but also my work with these women and witnessing the process of awakening uh, Mm -hmm. of consciousness that happens during a medication taper that I now understand to be a necessary element of the mindset transition from this happened to me. It's my bad genes. It's my, you know, life circumstances. It's all the ways I've been victimized. And now there's nothing I can do because my body is broken and I just have to take this med and be dependent on the system for the rest of my life. Shifting from that mindset into a mindset that says, wow, I needed to go through all of this in order to have this opportunity to see things totally differently to trust my body, to find meaning in all of the adversity that I encounter, to see that there is no good and bad, that there is only experience, and to recognize that I actually am responsible. And so I've been accused of, you know, blaming the victim and and shaming people. But I actually think that that responsibility is the key to empowerment. That when you say, I made these choices. I made them from the consciousness that I had available to me at the time. And now I'm going to make different choices and I'm going to move through life understanding that I am always in control. I am always responsible for anything and everything that I experience and my reaction to it. It's a totally liberating way to live, but that mindset shift sometimes requires a bit of a birth canal and it can be a challenging process and things can have to fall apart. You know, I am, Notorious for the statistic out of my practice, which is that over 98% at this point of my um, the women that I work with from start to finish end up having dissolution of their marriage. And why would that be? Am I encouraging? Am I sitting up here like condoning divorce? Of course not. It's because when you make choices from a certain level of consciousness and then you wake up, you know, which I believe coming off of medications is an opportunity to free people from a sort of, you know, suppression of things that they didn't want to look at, to free people from saying no to their felt experience. Because in some ways that's what medication, antibiotics, any of it is. It's like, whatever's going on in here? No. It's a way of saying no. It's a way of saying this has to be managed and controlled and it's not okay. And it's no wonder why women are prescribed at double the rate that men are because our feelings are very threatening. <laughs> They're very threatening to to a society that wants everything to be ordered and you know sort of predictable. And the truth is that that uh, you know this feminine sensibility is actually the compass for an entire species, but it's it's been suppressed. And so there is often um, a kind of restructuring that needs to happen as you wake up and you look around and you say, gosh, I chose all of this, this job, this partner, you know, these friends when I was asleep. And now that I am coming into a different um, space in my life, I may have to shed some of this stuff. And so this is how this process can become quite a spiritual journey, but it's, you know, I've never had a patient come out the other side and say, God, I wish I didn't do that. No.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's why I feel like your work fits so well with tapping. Like one of the the biggest things that I tap on with clients is always what's the downside about getting what I want. Yes, and when yes. it comes to the downside of having to wake up, we know, like we hear this and we think part of us is like, yes, that's what I want. I want a different life. This, I don't feel comfortable in my skin. This doesn't feel like my life. I want to change But then there's another part of us that's like, but I'm scared because it's so unknown. I'm going into something that like, I don't know what it's going to be like. So it's like the saying, like you rather the devil, you know, versus devil you don't know. But with something like tapping, I feel like it can just at least give you that ease. It's always a little uncomfortable because it's outside your comfort zone. But if you find that faith and that comfort within those moments of discomfort, it's like we are led by something greater and we do find more ease.
1: 100. I couldn't literally couldn't agree more. It's exactly what you're saying. And, and that's where where it's, it's a it's an awkward thing to realize that we actually sometimes would prefer to be sick.
0: You mm-hmm. know,
1: it, and, and it is what it is. I mean, we've been conditioned on some level to identify all of the things that are unprocessed pain, all the felt wrongness as being externalized in, a, in, a, in an illness label. We get to live a certain kind of life, you know, where this society takes illness pretty seriously, right? So if you don't want to go with your friend to a movie, you just don't feel like it. We don't have a society set up where you can just be like, you know what, I want to just reflect and be by myself. And Mm -hmm. that's what I'm going to do. Instead, you get a headache. Exactly. But if you have a headache, you know, everyone gets that, right? It's a currency. And so what would it be like for you to to socially not have a currency of health complaints, you know? We, We barely know how to live without disease diagnosis. So it is, it absolutely is the wild unknown. And there will be clarity, I think, for the people who are ready to make this journey um, that you can't resist the pull, you know, yeah. it doesn't, it's going to be easy. Like I said, and in fact, I often point out, you know, that In the DSM, so in the Diagnostic Manual for uh, Psychiatry, which is basically a big dictionary of labels that's ever-growing, you know, homosexuality was in this book in the 70s, so you can imagine the integrity of it, but it's um, in there, a pathological symptom is crying, tears, literally, it's, it's a criteria of a disease label of depression, and so how how far afield you know have we been flung when we when the most human expression is considered a problem like, like we really mm. have to look at it from that perspective where we are no longer allowed to in a healthful way experience sadness grief pain rage all of these shadow emotions are the necessary complement to joy and ecstasy and expansive states you know they come together they come together we wouldn't know one without the other and to have the full freedom to experience human emotions is something we need to l- literally start changing conversations that we have in our society so that that's allowed you know because according to psychiatry today if you lose a loved one You've got two weeks to get your act together because if you don't within two weeks and you still are really struggling in all of the ways that many of us do in a grief state, you are all of a sudden a candidate for treatment. And the implication is that that's because something is wrong Remember that chemical imbalance. Right. But what if we just need to redefine that grief is sometimes disabling. Sometimes yeah. you cannot jump back into life in two weeks when you are feeling that depth of pain. So it really does invoke, obviously, much, much bigger systemic issues. But no one has to worry about that, right? Because if you just commit to this kind of compassion for yourself, um, and commit to a level of self care that may even be a bit uncomfortable initially, it probably will, then you are one more like imaginal cell, right? Like you are one more node in this you know, light display that is is, you know, turning on all over the planet and it matters. Like every single person yes. in path matters.
0: It matters. And I think it's important to To remind ourselves that the work we're doing goes beyond us. Sometimes it's so much easier to do things for others than it is for ourselves. And so a thought that I would hold on to when I was doing the work around how I felt about myself and my body confidence and, um, and my weight was I realized it didn't start with me. My mother felt it. My grandmother felt it. My great grandmother felt it. This is generations of women who are being told that their worth is dependent on how they look and being perfect and being happy all the time. And here I was trying to, you know, to fit in and Experiencing a struggle that has been happening for generations before me. And so when I began to learn about the other side, you know, realizing, oh, this isn't all there is. There is actually a way to feel at home in your body and to feel comfortable with yourself. When I like saw that light, one thing I thought to myself was, and I started just this journey in my early 20s. So it wasn't like I was thinking about having children, but it was that idea of, I don't want this. And I know you have two little girls. I don't want this to be part of the legacy. Right. I got this from my ancestors. I it to stop where I am. And many people who struggle with depression have the same thing. Their mother struggled, their aunt struggled, yeah. their grandmother struggled.
1: And does that mean that it's genetic? That's what we're being told. <laughs> and right. it's a convenient thing for industry to convince the population that something is in fact genetic. Because what does genetic mean? In our understanding, genetic means your thoughts don't matter. Your diet doesn't matter. Mm. Your exercise and lifestyle doesn't matter. Your beliefs don't matter. It's just pre-programmed. So there's sort of nothing you can do about it. So you got to just, you know, follow the doctor's orders. But what if what we are calling genetic is exactly what you're describing, which is the handing down of belief systems and the handing down of lifestyles, right? So if we all ate a bunch of you know, garbage and then we all shared this response of anxiety. Like every time you have a sore throat, you run to the doctor, get an antibiotic. And then we all were sort of like entrained to be very pessimistic and, you know, sort of distrusting of our bodies, then it becomes this legacy. And it's so powerful what you're saying, because we have an opportunity not only to sort of heal ourselves, but to stop a process that otherwise might have you know, taken on a life of its own.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanna ask you um, a few questions that I like to ask all guests, and then we're gonna talk about a special uh, experience we have uh, for everyone that's watching. My first question is, what is something that at the time felt like a horrible experience and it ended up becoming a big blessing? Mm,
1: I love this question because um, there is, uh, so what my favorite philosopher is Alan Watts, right? And he's this British guy who's unfortunately passed, but he, I'm pretty sure we were like lovers in a past lifetime because I I hear his voice and it's like something happens inside me. Anyway, he has this um, narration of this parable um, called the Chinese farmer. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's, it's basically this, uh,
0: Google it. Right. Like just okay. check it out because Chinese farmer.
1: Yeah. At and it's a four minute video story of this parable about the, all of these horrible things that happen to this farmer. Right. And his always like the neighbors come by and they're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And he's like, maybe. And then something great happens and it turns out obviously to be a great disadvantage. And they say, Oh, this is so wonderful, isn't it? And he goes, maybe. And so I've come to refer to it as the maybe principle. And I think it's one of the most critical perspectives um, to recondition your psyche around. And personally, I mean, the greatest lesson um, for me was in the passing of my mentor. I had a mentor named Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez. And he was like Jesus figure to me in my life, literally. Um, like when I met him, my insides were reconfigured and I, my entire life changed just knowing this man. And I had the privilege to work with him for seven months only, um, before he tragically passed. And it was totally unexpected. And we had like 700 projects in the work and works and I, you know, we communicated every single day and he became like a spiritual father to me and someone who made the universe. Okay. Um, and you know, when he died, I had never encountered that kind of shock, um, or honestly trauma in my life. And I surrendered in a way, um, I was brought to my knees in a way that only that kind of pain and grief can do for you. And I began, um, I had already sort of been in the Kundalini yoga community, but I didn't really have a serious spiritual practice and I wasn't really meditating. I knew about, of course, I know about all the literature, 40 years of literature (laughs) supporting it, but I wasn't really doing it because I sort of was addicted to my own stress. Um, And I got down on my, you know, floor the next morning and I started a pre-dawn practice because in Kundalini there's some sort of, and, and many, many spiritual traditions and religious traditions like something special to Getting up um, before the sunrise and and you know having a devotional experience at that time. And I started that practice then, and I have not missed a day since. And within two months, my entire nervous system was literally rewired. Within two months, my life changed. And I have since gone so many leagues deeper in my process, in my potential to impact, you know, the conversation around these issues and in my own um, journey as a mother. And it is in direct response to that loss. And so for me to say that, oh, I, you know, I'm glad that he's gone. Of course, I, I can't still, you know, I can't say that. But for me to understand that that was a necessary experience for me to become more of who I am meant to be, absolutely,
0: that's beautiful. Um, my next question is not so deep. Well, it can be. It depends. It depends. It all depends on your answer. If you could be any animal, what would you be and why?
1: That's funny. Since I was a kid, I've always loved armadillos. I always <laughs> identified them as like very clearly my favorite animal. Um, and now I, I wouldn't say that I like think of them as being, you know, necessarily like a pet I want to have, but I think part of the reason that I like I probably identified with them is because I have this very and I've been working on it for many years. So you're catching me at an improved state. <laughs> no, but I have this very hard exterior, you know, I have a big mouth. I have a lot of opinions. I have a temper, you know, I'm Italian Irish and it's come through, through and through. And I have a lot of masculine energy, a lot of do it, fix it, like don't mess with me kind of energy. And it's been enculturated by my family and I've taken on this role in many people's lives. Um, And so that's sort of like hard shell, I guess is something I identify with. But of course, there's also this like vulnerability always. That's the reason for a hard shell is the vulnerability and softness inside in a way. And so I, I sort of, I don't know, I feel like it's an important thing for me every day to recognize that that's my work is like balancing out the feminine and masculine, balancing out the yin and yang and softness and, and hardness. And for whatever reason, that animal invokes that for me.
0: I love that! What a great answer! <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good question, right? You wouldn't think.
1: It is. it is a good question. But you
0: get some good answers. <laughs> um, so, tell us about this this workshop that you have. What are we calling it? Workshop? Yeah, it's a workshop. Yeah. Free workshop.
1: Yeah. yeah so I, um, you know, once I started to do this work um, and with success, I had like a two year wait list and in my Manhattan practice, and it was just totally ridiculous because I'm not doing brain surgery in here. I mean, it's, it's, it's really something that is, as you know, I know you, you all as a family espouse something that can be handed to the people and the people can work with it. And that's the most beautiful technology there is because, you know, when you have a medicine, so to speak, that is in your control, then everyone wins because we can spread it and we can begin to activate and heal more and more people on this planet and man is it necessary so i wrote a book and i developed an online program called vital mind reset which is essentially exactly what i do in my practice literally and then some because there's as you know as you all know the value of there's an online community and there are you know tools that i've been um collecting in fact nick at this moment is recording a teaching for my community um, because of how, you know, how much I want to have all of the resources that I value um, in in one place. But I also know that's a big step and not, maybe not everyone is ready for, you know, for this moment to be the moment that they take control of their health and change their story. Um, So I, I've been working over the past six months on like, How can I give people a small taste of these experiences you and I have been talking about of sort of micro healing, like a small taste of how their body can respond in like a week with something very basic. Um, So I I have a a free online workshop that I'd love to share and it addresses um, anxiety, brain fog and fatigue. Uh, like the most common complaints I would say in my practice the most common issues um, and then what I believe to be the number one most critical tool for healing and and sort of how to access shifts around it which is the mindset piece uh, and so yeah so we are we're totally excited to make that available to to your peeps and their downloads and sort of it's very practical because I can be very up here about stuff uh, <laughs> but it's very sort of uh, you know, in your kitchen kind of stuff.
0: Well, for those who are watching on Facebook Live, we'll put the link in the comments. And for those of you who are listening on iTunes, you can go to thetappingsolution.com forward slash notes and get that link. Or if you have a good memory, it's kellybroganmd.com forward slash workshops. It's pretty simple. kellybroganmd.com forward slash workshop. Kelly, this has been um, inspiring and amazing and I'm grateful for you. And I'm grateful that you shared this with my community Thank you so much.
1: You know, it's just such a blessing to have you on the path with me and to to speak to your community because I, I feel such a synergy and I'm really super honored. Thanks.
0: Thank you, too. Thank you so much, Kelly. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Remember, if you like this show, you can also subscribe on iTunes. The show is called Adventures in Happiness. Take care, everyone.